0: Man, I'm really excited to be here. I can confidently say I've never gotten to say I'm the ladies' retreat speaker, (laughs) but I'm pretty excited about that. (laughs) So tonight, I want to just make sure we know what we're getting into. Uh, It's going to feel maybe a little bit like a class this weekend. So I want to teach you some principles to study the Bible, and I know what you're thinking. I didn't come here to go to class. And here's this nerdy teacher dude that Sandy said, you know, but trust me, I really think this stuff is really helpful and very important. And we will be in the Word of God, too. So if you want to open up your notes, we'll dive in. Um, Yeah, so I'm just a normal guy. Like, I married an awesome woman who is much better than me. She's like, you know, you marry up, and we do have two kids that are really awesome. They have way a lot of energy. So you who are parents, you know that age, where your kids have all that energy and you think, I could just have like 10% of that. That's what our kids are right now. They just It's like they wake up in the morning before they should, and they just stay up all night, and it is really, really... I could, if I could have a little bit of their energy. But So parents out there, you kind of know where we're at right now in life. But it's wonderful. It's good. Uh, I really like coffee. My students know that I like coffee. I'm not, I don't think too much. But I think they might have made a description of it differently than I do. So um, let's see here. I do like to read books. How many of you are readers? Yeah, see, that's great. So I do like reading books. I don't get to read as many as I want to. So that's kind of the bummer. But I really like studying the Word of God. And so this weekend, I want to study the Word of God with you, and I want to talk about how to study the Word of God. Because I never knew, I didn't realize that I didn't know how to study the Word growing up. So. Let me Go ahead and open us in prayer, and then I want to tell you a little personal testimony story about my life and what Bible study looked like, and then I want to dive into talking about a type of Bible study that I think is really, really helpful. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Father, we love you. Thank you for today, Lord. Thank you that we can be here together. Thank you, Father, for the joy that it is to be able to see good friends we haven't seen in a long time, uh, be able to gather around some good excitement, we could have some fun together, And, Father, we also get to devote ourselves to worshiping you and devote ourselves to learning to get to know you better. I pray, Father, that you would work during this time, that you would help us to better understand your word and how to handle it so that we could better understand you. In your son's name we pray, amen. Okay, first of all, happy birthday, Nina. I didn't know it was your birthday. (laughs) Yeah, okay. Okay. All right. <clears throat> so growing up, <laughs> I, I got saved at a young age. So uh, you've heard people who say like they knew about Christianity in their head, but they didn't have it in their heart, right? You've heard of that before. So I'm kind of like if you took the teeter-totter and flipped it the other direction. I got saved at a young age, but I didn't really understand things. I'm kind of a dense person. And so I didn't really understand how the Bible worked. I got some weird ideas uh, from a book about angels and demons, and I thought there's all this mystical stuff going on all around all the time. And uh, so anyways, my, my life is filled with the story of me like getting into this book and reading it and wondering why it didn't work. So I remember one time I was like slightly depressed, and my life's going bad, and I wanted to sort this out, and I said, God, we're going to get this fixed. By the way, never the way to talk to God. So... <laughs> I went out and found this picturesque scenic place in Johnson where I could sit on a military tank, Camp Dodge, and uh, got like some sugary pop and a big candy bar and my Bible. No understanding of how to use my Bible, I mean some, and I sat down and said, God, we're going to fix this, and I flip open. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled away. Therefore, I said, look away from me. Let my... What? I, that didn't. Work. Now I'm in Isaiah. Okay, I don't know. I'm in Isaiah. I think the. You know, I just flip around again. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Behold, I mean, I'm just flipping all over, and I don't know what's going on. And I remember having this really sad feeling. I spent like two hours on that tank flipping around my Bible, trying to figure out how to sort my life out, wanting to learn from the Word, and something was broken, and I didn't know how to fix it. Um, Last year I told the story, you probably saw the video of me and the meatballs. Do you remember that, some of you? My wife came to Ladies Retreat last year, and because she's a wonderful wife, she made me a pan of meatballs and put it in the fridge. She left me instructions on how to cook it, you know? So uh, she's, she's gone. I Don't worry, I took the plastic wrap off. Put them in, <laughs> cook them at the right temperature. for. You know how there's like this much time to this much time? Well, I did the low end, pulled it out, got on my thermometer, checked the temp, 91 degrees. It's been in there like 10, 15 minutes. Okay, put it back in. All right, and it, maybe it needs to go the full time. So let it go like seven more minutes, I think. Pulled it out. I mean, it's bubbling. That it looks right. Put it in. 90 degrees. It dropped in temperature. Put it back in for like five more minutes. Now, this time I pull it out and it's like crunchy looking. Something. And so I put the thermometer back in 91 degrees. It's like not changing. And I kept doing this. Thing. I couldn't figure out why this isn't working. And You will probably know, I had bumped the Celsius button on my thermometer. <laughs> Those things were the crunchiest meatballs I've ever eaten. <laughs> but they had like Parmesan in it. So you know when Parmesan gets all crunchy, it's good. Now that's an illustration. That was like my life. I didn't know what I was doing wrong. I just kept flipping my Bible open And it didn't work. I kept flipping my Bible open. Oh, and then sometimes it would work. And I'd flip my Bible open and, oh, it doesn't work. And I couldn't figure out why. And I never really knew if it was gonna be a good day or not. So here's the story. I'm at a youth group and I'm a helper. And the youth leader said, hey, let's all go pick one verse of the Bible and just read it over and over again for like 30 minutes and come back and we'll share what God told us. And so we go off and I did my Bible roulette and I came upon, ooh, fancy transition. Thank you for that, Shane. I, I happened upon, that's pretty good. That's not what it looked like when I made it. That's, that's much better. This is the verse I happened upon, Ephesians 5.1. Be imitators of God as, sorry, I typed that wrong, dearly loved children. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children. So I pondered every word. Be. What does it mean to Be. And I'm like 19 and a little weird, you know. And then, imitators. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait a second. I know what that, you know. Okay, you imitate, you copy. Huh. What do I copy every day already? Hmm, interesting. What am I supposed to copy? God. Oh, man, now I'm suddenly like, like, I didn't know this is the word for what I'm experiencing, but I'm convicted. Oh, man, I'm really trying to be like a lot of things, not all bad things even, but things that aren't really me trying to be like God. Huh, and then the whole dearly loved children thing. So it's like 30 minutes goes by in no time. We come back together as a group, and the leader says, okay, let's go around and share what God's told us. We get to me, and I just, I say it, and they're like, oh, yeah, okay. And so we kind of go around, and then we get to my buddy. He looks white as a ghost. And uh, so he flipped open to this passage. Obadiah said, ah, come back. Obadiah 7, now there's only one chapter in Obadiah, so this is verse 7. It says this, All of your allies will force you to the border. Your friends will deceive and overpower you. Those who eat your bread will set a trap for you. Watch out, camp, we all ate your bread tonight. But you will not detect it, Phil. Where is he at? Okay, so I'm not kidding. He is seriously white, and he reads that verse. Or no, he doesn't even read the verse. We're like, hey, what, what did you learn? He's like, I think God's telling me my friends are going to get me. <laughs> and he's not joking, and we're all like, what did God tell that man? And so we're like, what verse did you read? Obadiah 7. And he reads it to us, and we're all like, but we all kind of like, some of us are like, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> but it says friends, and so it's just a very weird moment. And so, this is like a perfect illustration. And you're probably more advanced than that. You probably get, I mean, this is somewhat obvious to most, some of you at least. But there are probably some people who hear, man, that, that might have happened to you. It happened to me. Why did I get it right? And why did my friend get it wrong? I got lucky. That was it. Now, um, we're, I got providential, okay? We don't believe in luck, okay? I got providence, okay? But I can understand now why that happened. And so this weekend, I want to talk about some, some information, like stuff that I've had to study to teach that's really helped me. And this is the thing. What I learned felt more like studying, So as we walk through this, it might seem more like you're in class at times, and I know I'm a teacher, but I'm not trying to make it like that. It might seem like we're talking about stuff you do that maybe seems a little mechanical. Because when we approach our Bible, what do we want? We want a vibrant relationship with the Lord. We want to connect with God. We want to know what it is he has for our lives. We want to have a cultivated relationship with him. And so I would do things like that, and sometimes it just wouldn't work. But there's another time in my life where I remember sitting Romans chapter five, where it says uh, God is He's poured the love of God in our hearts, and the question is like, is God pouring like love in my heart so I know that God loves me, or is He like pouring my love for Him and like I wouldn't love Him, but He poured poured the love in there, so now I love Him. I couldn't figure out which way it was going because it was kind of one of those sentences that could go either way. I'm reading all these books and doing all this studying, and it took me like an hour and a half to figure that out. I'm not real bright. But at the end of the hour and a half of looking at all these dusty commentaries, I, f- I completely understood, oh, if it weren't for God putting love for him in my heart, I wouldn't love him on my own. I'm not that, I'm, I'm a totally depraved sinner. God had to give me the ability to love him. He had to do that to me. It took an hour and a half to figure this out. Again, I'm slow. You probably figured out quicker. But after that time, it was a moment with the Lord. Like, wow, I know my Lord loves me. I know why I love him. It was a, it was a kind of a relational moment with him. But I didn't aim for that. I was just trying to teach Sunday school. So I want to know what all the text said. So no one would ask a question I didn't know. But by studying it that way, I actually understood his word. And when I understood his word, I learned him. I understood him better. And man, I never would have thought that's how it worked. So this weekend, we want to talk about these things. That's what we want to aim for. So at times, it might feel like studying, but hang with me. I think it'll be worth it. So here's the method we want to talk about. The OIA method. Anyone ever heard of inductive Bible study? That's basically it. So if you're an inductive Bible study person, this is going to be somewhat familiar. Unless it's K. Arthur. It's really good, but I'm not going to teach you any doodles to put in your Bible margins. There's no doodles, okay? You can draw a dove if you want for the Holy Spirit, but that's hard to draw, okay? But that's not what we're talking about. We're just talking about the the essential part that she uses. So, okay. This clicker does not like me. There we go. There are three steps to this method. The first step is observation. And when we are doing observation, we're basically asking this question. What does the text say? And that's all we're really trying to answer, actually. We aren't really going to ask any questions about what the text means yet. And that's going to sound really counterintuitive because you're probably used to getting in and thinking, okay, what's this mean and how does it change my life? But you've got to stop and wait for just a second and do some studying. So the first step is observation. The second step is interpretation. And that is where we ask, what does this mean? What does this mean? So, we've read the text, we've studied it, we've read through it a couple of times, we've looked at the words in the passage, we've asked, hey, what kind of a letter is this, or what kind of a history book is this, or what kind of a, guy, like, what are the, what's the genre? And once we do that, then we ask the question, oh, what does all this mean? We want to know, understand its meaning and its significance. And once we do both of those, the last step we're going to do is application. And this is where we ask the question, what does it mean for me. And that's really what I think most of us are aiming at when we get in the Bible. Like we want to know how does this change our life? But it's imperative to do the other two steps first. So I want to talk about how the order is really important. The order of this method we're going to learn really really matters. You can't go out of order or it's not going to work. Okay. So first off, most of the time, and this was my story, and maybe it's yours, we dive into our Bible, and the first thing we want to know is, what does this mean for me? That's actually how I got into trouble. Remember when I was flipping through my Bible, and I get to you know Isaiah, and it says something about whatever Isaiah is talking about, And I'm like, well, what does this mean for me? But do you know what I didn't ask? I didn't ask any questions about what that passage is actually talking about. I didn't look at any of the structure. I didn't find out, is this like a history? Is this a prophecy? Is this a letter? I didn't do any of that. And that's why I didn't understand what it meant. So you've got to go in order. And we usually want to go for application first. Sometimes, though, we jump to the middle. Interpretation. How many times do you get into something and you're trying to figure out what it means? And maybe some of you already have some Bible study tools like commentaries and things. And you dive into the commentaries. And you ever do that and it kind of makes it more confusing? Often, that's because we haven't read and studied the actual text enough. I taught Sunday school for a long time in my church. And I would get into the commentaries early. And I would be so confused sometimes. Sometimes. And then I was studying some methods of, like, how to do better observation. And I realized, this is very embarrassing to admit. Most of the time, I'd probably read the chapter, like, one time. And I didn't even think about it. It wasn't like, oh, I don't think this is important. I just would get so into the next part that I would forget to read it. So one thing I have my students do is they have to read a passage at least two times before we study it in class and there's one method where we haven't read it 5 times ask yourself this question when's the last time you read one chapter or one section 5 times before you started to take any notes on it that actually is a huge help to your bible study method but usually i jump ahead and i want to do interpretation really for the last two steps to really work we've got to spend a lot more time in the first step which is observation so tonight, we want to talk about those. And I actually would say this, if you looked at these three steps and said, which one is the one that people forget the most, I think maybe sometimes in conservative Bible circles we think it's application, because, you know, you got that, like, kind of that not true picture always of, like, the preacher who goes through the passage but then never makes application. Or you're in Sunday school and you talk all about it but you don't make it. So we kind of get this idea, oh, it's application, but personally, I think it's observation. I don't think we don't look at the text long enough. I don't think we look at the text clear enough. I don't think we take enough notes on it. And those things will make it much more solid as you study your Bible. So, here's my question. When you study your Bible for your devotions, which step do you think you usually begin with? Now, you don't have to answer this out loud, but just for a moment reflect on like your last week of Bible study or devotions or Whenever the last time you were in the Bible studying it, you're looking at the three steps, observation, interpretation, application. Observation, what's the text say? Interpretation, what does it mean? Application, what's it mean for me? When you get into the Bible, what's the first step you usually jump into or gravitate toward? The reason I'm having you ask this question is, I never started with observation and I didn't understand that I was not doing that. Once I learned to start with that, my Bible, like, came alive. It was like it turned on or it got louder. I'm not sure how to describe it, but it started doing stuff in my life, and I realized it because I was understanding it for the very first time. There we go. (laughs) So I think this is the forgotten step. I think that most of the time, this is the thing that we're forgetting. This is the thing that we're lacking. And part of the reason is this. I think... When something is really familiar to you, you tend to not see it after a while. Have you ever been taking a long trip, or or maybe a short trip, but you're going somewhere you've never gone before? And how long does it take you to get, like say you're going to go to an ice cream shop you've never been to, in a part of town you've never been at, and you've got to like read the directions, and let's say it takes 20 minutes to get there. Have you ever had this experience where, it feels like way longer than 20 minutes on your way over. But then like the next five times you go, you don't even realize you just drove 20 minutes. In fact, you didn't even pay attention to it. Why did that happen? Because it's so familiar. With the Bible, I think we get really familiar with it in our circles, which is a good thing, because we're constantly hearing it preached. We're constantly talking about it. We're going to Bible studies. We're coming to ladies' retreats. But that familiarity actually works against us sometimes, where then we don't really dive in and focus on what we ought to focus on. So I think observation is really, really important. Okay, Matthew 4.4. 4. What's the context of Matthew 4.4? Does anyone remember? You can shout it out if you want. I think you can do that. We can pretend this is a classroom, and you can just shout things out. So what is it? Temptation, that's right. It's the temptation of Christ. Yeah, I I couldn't hear you live streamers. That you're gonna have to shout louder from back in Jensen. Okay. Alright. Um if one of them runs up and yells, that will be actually be really, really funny. Can you imagine like a live one of the people that run up? Oh okay. Alright. So here we are. Matthew 4. It says this uh, um oops, I'm in Mark. That's not gonna work. I'm telling you all that stuff Sandy said, it's not true. Okay, Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and forty nights, he was hungry. I feel like that's um, one of those like understatement sentences, like after forty days and he was hungry. I would think so, yeah. And the tempter came to him and said, and by the way, I just want to pause. I mean, if, if you have a temptation that you face regularly, is it easier to overcome that temptation when you're really tired? Is it easier to overcome that temptation when you're really hungry? I mean, I'm like not a very nice person to be around when I'm hungry to begin with. So I just think it's really interesting that those little things that we kind of discount, like when Christ was tempted, like those things happened to him. And so he knows what that's like. Okay, moving on. So the tempter came to him and said... If you're the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, now I'm going to pause. If I'm, if I'm hungry, really hungry, and I could turn stones into loaves, even if it would like short-circuit the plan God had for me, it would be really hard for me not to do that if I was really hungry. And so what I could have said to the tempter if it was me is I could say, no, I'm not supposed to do that. Okay, and that would be an okay answer. I want to obey God. But notice what Jesus says. He says, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I think that's very instructive to us. When Jesus faced temptation, he didn't say, ah, uh, I shouldn't do that because it's wrong. Although that's, that's true, okay? He, he shouldn't do this. He had a a thing he was doing, and to to use um, his powers in that situation and forego the temptation would have been outside of the plan of God. But instead, what he says is, you misunderstand something, Satan. I don't think I need that bread to live, because I know that something I need even more than that bread is God's word. That's the thing that I really need to live. When we study the Bible, it's really helpful for us to remember that this is the thing we actually need to live. Now, I don't, my guess is no one here has a problem thinking that. You probably think, yeah, I know, I really do know that I need this. But notice it doesn't say, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every big idea that God presents in Scripture. It doesn't say the big idea. It actually says every word that God said. I think sometimes when we come to the Bible, we want like the big idea. But God in his wisdom gave us his words, plural. Each one of them chosen by him specifically, given through a human author of scripture, overseen by the Holy Spirit in 2 Peter 1.21. They're carried along by the Spirit so that... The book you have is exactly the down to the word what God really wants you to have, and so sometimes I think we want to shortcut that and we just, well okay, what's the big idea for my life and so what we could do is get a little bit more careful about looking at the words. I also don't want you to think that if you're not doing this every time you're not studying the Bible right okay this is addressing maybe you need to get a little deeper into it so. When Jesus saw temptation, he understood that the very words that God said, that's what he needed to live. So, as we study the Bible, that's going to be something we're going to bring into how we do it. All right, the next verse I want to talk about, maybe, there we go, is 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 is on the slide there for you. Um, This one is pretty well known. And so here it says that all scripture is breathed out by God. And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We might say that the woman of God also may be complete, because I think it's mankind there. Well, when it says all scriptures breathed out, the picture here, this is a really cool picture, the word is literally like the Greek word for God and the Greek word for breath smashed into one word, God breath. And it's like God exhaling So anyone here play like a horn or a woodwind instrument? And if you want to raise your hand enough that I can see it. Okay, there's no horn players in the room or woodwinds. Okay, that's amazing. Okay, there we go. There, there. It's really funny. The the horn players are all like... So I don't know if that's like not the show's uh, piano player? Okay, anyways. So I asked this to my students' faith. I asked who plays more than one instrument? And so someone will invariably raise their hand, and then I'll pick on that student. I'll say, okay, for our illustration, this student is God. And everyone in the class always laughs because the student's not God. But, <laughs> what, I mean, come on, we, that'd be heresy, right? Okay. But, but here's the illustration. God has his word, and he used human authors to give it to us. And so as he breathes out through Paul, Paul, in his own personality, writes a lot of epistles that end up becoming Scripture. And then as God breathes out through another author, we'll say Peter, Peter writes according to his own personality and sound and tone, and out comes the scriptures. And so both are God's word, but each have their own sound to it. So it's kind of like if you play like a trombone, it's going to sound one way, but maybe over here you play a trumpet, and it's the same musician, you could even play the same song on both, but it might sound slightly different. That's the idea Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy. The scriptures that you have are the very words of God. And he would be talking in this case about the Old Testament. We would apply it to the New Testament. Well, what are those words profitable for? Those words are profitable for teaching. That's kind of like what we're doing now. It's what you do if you teach Sunday school. It's what your pastor does on Sunday. It's what your Sunday school teacher does. Parents... When you're having devotions with your children, that's what you're doing. The Word of God is profitable for that. It's also profitable for reproof. Now, I don't always use that word, but reproof means to correct, or or excuse me, to point out error is a better way to say it. So if you say something that's wrong and I point it out, that's a reproof. Well, the Word of God is very profitable for that. It can point out what's going wrong in our lives. Then it says, for correction... Correction is saying, hey, this is what you ought to be doing. So you're doing the wrong thing. It's not just that it says, hey, that's wrong, and then it walks away. It actually tells you what's wrong, and now, hey, this is the right way to live. And then lastly, it's good for training in righteousness. And so it keeps you going forward in the direction you need to be going. That's what the Word of God is profitable for. So if we're going to study it, do you notice that the words that God gives are actually chosen by him, and those words are very, very profitable, very powerful. So it's my opinion that when we study the Bible, it's worth looking very carefully at the passages, even down to sometimes the words. So I want to demonstrate that for you. I want to show you an example of how this kind of thinking about the Bible, it's inspired and inerrant all the way down to the word choice, can actually help you sort out two passages. So let's go back to the passages that we had at the beginning. Uh, oh, sorry. We got to do something first. This is a book uh, called The Knowable Word. This is really good. You don't. If you, I don't know if you want to scribble this down. This, this is maybe like 98 pages. It's like this big, and it's a super basic book on inductive Bible study. It's really simple. And this guy has a lot of stuff on his website for free that you can download. That are like uh, Bible study plans you can like print and it will tell you like what to do in the passage. It's really helpful stuff. But I'm gonna share five elements of observation that we need to look for, and I'm getting them from this book, so I just want to make sure I'm telling you. It's from this book, The Noble Word by Peter Kroll. So here are his five elements of observation. When you study a passage, if you want to be careful to look at the context and the words and make sure you take really good observations, the first thing you need to look into is what is the genre? What is the genre now? Genre is just a fancy French word that means kind. That's it. So all you're asking here is what kind of book are you looking at? Are you looking at a letter? Well, all of the letters that Paul wrote were letters from him to a specific church. If you write a letter, do you usually just write a letter for no reason? I mean, you got like a pen pal, right? So you kind of write a letter. But generally, when you write a letter, don't you have like a reason you're writing it? I don't know too many people that are going to waste time and ink just to kind of write a letter. You you want something to happen, you want to communicate something, or there's a problem, you need to deal with it. Well, it's very similar for Paul. When he's writing these books, there are issues he's dealing with. But if you look at like poetry, like Proverbs, it's a totally different ballgame. It's not trying always to deal with something that's very specific, but it's teaching broad, general principles. I can't approach both of those in the same way. Think about prophecy. (laughs) That's where we really get into trouble, because a prophecy is a very specific thing that one prophet is telling to like a nation or something. And if I don't know any of that context... I'm going to think it's talking about me, and it's not. So look for the genre. So in your Bible studies, when's the last time you like really took that into account? That can be really helpful. The second thing he asks us to look for is words. Words. Uh, are there any repeated words in the passage you're studying? Man, this one has really, <laughs> it's really, really left a mark on me. I've noticed repeated words ever since I started looking into this and it almost always points me to the thing God actually wanted me to know from that passage. Uh, Are there any words that are confusing to you or technical? You might need to look those up. Thirdly, you might want to look into the grammar. Now, hold on, grammar. I don't think you need to be an English major to study your Bible. Okay, I just want to say that. But do you know what a verb is? Do you know what a noun is? If you know... Sorry, some of you thought that was a real question. Okay. Yeah, okay. All right, all right. Yeah, if you know a little bit about that, then sometimes you'll notice that Paul says specific things. So if you want, open up your Bible to Colossians chapter 3 really quick. Colossians chapter 3. So we're, I'm just going to look and say, where are the command verbs in this passage? Where are the command verbs? So we'll read just really briefly and just pay attention to where you see commands. So Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Oh, there's one. So I'm told to seek something. Okay, seeking is a verb and here Paul's telling me it's something I got to do. Verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Okay, there's another command verb. Now, what's interesting is, if I'm seeking something, what am I really doing? Well, I'm looking for it. But here, Paul is telling me to seek something that's above. Like lights? I'm confused. Now, he's not talking like looking like you normally think. He says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, what's up at the right hand of God with Christ? Well, I had to think about that for a minute. Well, What's it like right now in heaven right next to Christ? Think about that. How much of what Christ desires happens in heaven? Like, if he wants something and he asks an angel to do it, would the angel do it? Is there any, like, sin going on around him? Is his will being carried out constantly? Are people seeing him and worshiping him for what he is? See see the picture Paul's trying to paint? He wants you to think, What is it like there, and how can I live that way, seeking those things in my life? Now here's my question for you. What are you pursuing in your life right now? Are you pursuing the things that would line up with Christ? Or perhaps it's something else. No, not the heinous evil sins, but are they things that are less than Christ? Are you seeking things that are not truly what God would want for you, even if they're not the worst sins ever? For me, looking for the verbs here is what really alerted me to this for the first time in my life. Man, what am I really seeking right now? How did I catch this? I saw the verb. Now look at verse 5. He uses a really strong verb. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. What did he just talk about? He was just talking about heaven and now he's talking about earth. Do you see that cool little flip-flop that just happened? Okay, what's earthly? Like, what's wrong with, like, okay, it's earthly to breathe air do I need to put that to death? <laughs> it would put me to death. Okay. Is that what he's talking about? Like people on earth eat bread and people who eat bread end up setting a trap, right? Oh man, do I need to put to death eating bread? Okay. Do you see where we're going with this? Now look, it's really great. If you miss it, he tells you right there in the passage. Put to death what is earthly in you, colon, and he begins to list all kinds of sins. In verse Eight, he says, but now you must put them all away. And he lists more sins. So he gives this command in verse two, or verse one and two, to seek the things that are above and to set your mind on those things. Then in five and eight, he says, hey, put these old things to death and put them all away. Then look, there's another command verb that we find if you go to verse 12. He says, put on then. Hey, there's another command. Did you notice the, the connection there between that one and the last verb? Look in verse 8. What are you supposed to do? Put something away. Does anyone's Bible say put off? Yeah, a couple. It's a, it's a word. The verb means to kind of take something off, like you're wearing a jacket and you take it off. And here, same idea, verse 12, put something on. So it's kind of like you're changing clothes. Like, you used to be visibly this way to one, like this way to people, but you take those practices off and you put new ones on. Now, question, do you think you could have like devotions for a week just meditating on what are the things that I'm putting on in my life and what are the things that I'm putting off? What am I seeking after? If I were to look at all the ways I live my life this week, how does this passage connect to those things? At at this moment, you might be having in your mind some areas that the Holy Spirit's bringing to mind that you need to change. Perhaps it's something you're seeking that you shouldn't be seeking. Perhaps it's something you've been setting your mind on. That's a hard thing nowadays. I'm telling you, I like my smartphone, and I like Facebook enough, but sometimes Facebook doesn't help me to set my mind on things above or any other social media. So for personally, just a little testimony here. I have a little 15-minute timer on my Facebook app. It's great, and after 15 minutes... It won't let me back on Facebook that day unless I ask my wife to put a little password in that only she knows. It's great. Why? Because I don't have self control. I will, what is everyone doing? I want to know. It's wonderful. And, you know, I have to be very nice to my wife now. So, no, I'm just kidding. I'm always very nice to my wife, right? <laughs> she doesn't like it when people look at her attention. So, no one look at my wife right now. Okay, uh, I'm going to get in trouble later. Okay, moving back to our little talk here. Okay, so grammar, how did, we, how did we discover all that? We said, hey, where are the verbs? What are the commands in the passage? And I said, hey, look at this one. It says, what are you seeking? Just uh, plant a little seed. In that moment, when we were just talking about that, was, don't say this out loud, but was the Holy Spirit starting to bring something up maybe you need to work on? Is there something that you weren't really thinking about and the way the passage explained it, man, in your mind, you realized, hey, I think, I'm, I think I shouldn't be seeking after that, or hey, I wonder if I'm setting my mind on this too much. If you're a believer here tonight, you love the Lord and you're humble before Him and you want to walk with Him, if you just understand this book a little more clearly than you used to, that's what the Holy Spirit will use. The Holy Spirit's role in our life is to convict us of sin, and to convince us of the right way to go. If something's come up in your mind right now, and the Lord's dealing in your heart, please ask this question, did I just raise my voice at you? Did I pound on this pulpit? Did I take this Bible and throw it at your face? No, I didn't, did I? how are you convicted right now? How are you being instructed in your heart in the truth? It's because we saw the word very clearly. You don't have to get... uh, It's okay to be passionate when you present the word. It's okay. It's okay for me to convincingly relay this to you. But please don't misunderstand. The thing you need in your devotional time with God is just a really clear picture of what this is saying. And a humble heart that loves God. If you're persisting in sin, like you got some sin you're holding on to, you know you shouldn't be doing this, but you're like, "Uh uh-uh, I'm not giving it up. That's not humble, that's arrogant. And you could come all day and look at the words and really try to drill down in the studies, and I'm not really sure that's going to do anything because you know what you're doing to the Holy Spirit right there? You're kind of shoving the Holy Spirit down. You're quenching that spirit from convicting you. You might be here today and you're not a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you're not a believer, then, you know, this is an interesting storybook. It really is. It's got some really cool stuff in here. But the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts me of sin. And so tonight, if that's you, please talk to the person you're here with. Talk to me. Talk to anyone with a camp shirt on. Uh, We would love to talk to you about the gospel, about Jesus Christ and who he is, so you can know him. And if you... Come to know him, you'll see that this word that he's given us is wonderful and amazing. So you can, you can have this by looking at the grammar. It's, it's weird, but it's how it works. Structure. Outlining a chapter is a great way to really observe it. That's basically what I just did in a very quick way in Colossians chapter 3 with you. Hey, look, here's the, here's the thing. You've got to set your mind this way. And then what does it say next? There's a whole bunch of stuff you need to put off in your life and, and cease. Move away. And then, what does it say next? Here's some virtuous aspects of your life you need to cultivate and put on. We just got a really quick outline of the passage. You can have three days of devotions right there. All about setting my mind one day, all about uh, putting off sins, and all about putting on these virtues. I mean, you could probably go weeks on that. But outlining a passage helps you in another way. Anyone have a hard time reading a book? Like, you ever pick up a book and you read, like, seven pages and you don't know what you just read? <laughs> this happens to me a lot. One way to solve that is by understanding the flow of the author. Well, if you can outline a chapter, go back and read it again and again, you'll get way more out of it. So Kroll has a really good point here. If you can outline a passage, it's really helpful. All right, his last tip is to check out the mood of the passage. The mood of the passage. Now, this, is, this one's a little subjective, Okay. But sometimes we read the Bible very monotone. We just read it like Jesus says to the Pharisees, "You brood of vipers, you sons of Satan." You know, like, and we're like just reading it that way, you know. Or like, here we go, Galatians, where uh, Paul says, "Let me see if I can find the exact verse for you." I can quote it, but I, okay, I can't find it. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you would believe another gospel? Is that the tone? No! But that's the thing, like, sometimes it's like four in the morning, we're drinking coffee, we're trying to get our devos in before the whole world blows up, we're like... You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you... This is Folgers. Uh, you know that you should believe another gospel. Okay, I should believe the right gospel. Okay, moving on. But like you got to pay attention to like what's going on in the pastors. I think sometimes we're just our mind is so far other in like other places that we just need someone to help us say, hey, don't forget about the mood, the tone, what kind of emotional words. I mean, if you call someone, hey, you brood of vipers. What's a brood? It's a family, right? What's a viper? It's a snake. Hey, you family of snakes. (laughs) Like, what if I got up here and I'm like, man, I'm really glad to be here, you family of snakes. (laughs) Like, that's not a compliment. Why is Christ saying that? And if he said that to a Jew, is there any more meaning to it? Is there any other snakes that a Jew would be very aware of? Yeah. Like, Genesis chapter 3. Like, this is the a huge thing Christ is saying to the Pharisees and we kind of just kind of gloss over it because we're not really thinking about it so I don't want you to feel horrible right now but all of these are avenues that can really cultivate more more deep study from the word okay so now we're going we're gonna to try it out alright so you got a little chart there okay and we're going we're gonna to look at the different things so I'm just going to take those two passages remember me and my buddy and I got luck, or I got providential and uh, he, did, he had no providence on his side well actually he would have providence because providence is both okay I had a fortunate and he had a misfortunate one, okay? So let's talk about the genre. Someone just yell out, including you downstream. Oh, down downstream, downstream, oh, that's good. Oh, ho, ho, ho. I'm going to give myself two points there. Oh, yeah, did you hear my wife's eyes roll? Oh, that was... She loves my jokes, let me tell you. Okay, what kind of, a, what kind of genre is Ephesians? What is it? It's a letter, that's right, it's a letter. And so, when Paul writes that, he's writing it a letter to what? A church. This is really important. We're going to see this in a minute. What's Obadiah? It's prophecy, okay. What kind of a prophecy? Anyone know? Or who's it to? Anyone know who it's to? I'm listening for the streaming people. No, okay. It's a prophecy to a nation called Edom. A nation called Edom. Now, Edom is like a distant relative of Israel. Okay, that's all we need to know at this point. But what separates a church and a prophecy to Edom? Well, there's actually a whole lot that separates them. Are we a part of the church today? Yes. Am I a part of Israel or Edom? No. Is the church under the Mosaic law? No, they're not. Is. Israel during Edom's prophecy? Yes. So here's a big difference. What's going on in Edom is that they are laughing at Israel. Israel is getting taken away in captivity and they're saying, ha ha, we're glad you're getting it. We don't like you anyways. And what they should have been doing is helping defend them as they get taken off. And so Obadiah goes to Edom and prophesies and says, listen, you think Everything's great. And you're laughing at your brothers, the Israelites, going away in captivity. But God's going to judge you. In fact, you have all these alliances, all these friends that you think are going to keep you safe. But guess what? They're actually plotting against you and they're going to destroy you one day. This is a prophecy to a very specific time and a very specific event that's going on in history. So I can't really take anything from that in a direct one-to-one way. But when Paul tells the church in Ephesus, hey, this is how you ought to live, that's the same life context that we have. So I can open Ephesians all day and I can walk away with personal applications very easily. But when I go to Obadiah, there's a lot separating me from the context of the Obadiah prophecy to Edom. And so I'm going to have to use that one differently. Now, the second one we want to talk about is words. In Ephesians 5.1, I think the key word there is imitators. Imitators. Now, normally I would also look for repeated words. But in one verse, usually there's not very many repeated words. So everything here hinges on the term Imitate. What does it mean to imitate? Well, it means to copy, it means to be like. And then what's really interesting is he gives a reason. He says as dearly loved children. So, if if you're a beloved child, do you want to be like your parent that loves you? Generally, yeah. Like when your kids are little and they just think you're great, they try to be just like you. I have some funny stories of my son trying to push his belly out to look like me. <laughs> it's really embarrassing but trust me, he's doing it out of love. Okay? Now, usually, like, when people become a little older and they don't really like their parents as much and they're teenagers, uh, do they want to be like their parents anymore? No, see, because they're mad, they don't like that person. Or if you have someone you were really close friends with and you, like, do friend things, I don't know, twins day, like, you dress, I don't know, you're friends, and you have a falling out, you almost try to be as opposite of that person as you can sometimes. So when Paul says to imitate God, he's not saying to imitate God out of guilt. He's not saying to imitate God because if you don't, you get in trouble. He's not saying imitate God because God will get you. He's saying imitate God because you're his dearly loved child. Like the motivation to live the godly life is that God loves you. That's totally different than a lot of the ways we think normally. Now, if you just pay attention to that word and ask why, suddenly your devotions are really vibrant. All right, what's a key word in Obadiah? Friend. <laughs> friend is a key word. Now, I purposely picked the, and I'm not trying to dog on this translation, the NIV, but every other translation doesn't translate friend. It says it translates that word in Hebrew as ally, or um, there's one other term, but it means like an ally. And so the problem is that if he'd had like a different translation, he wouldn't have made the, pr- the mistake because it wouldn't have been the word friend. But even if all of them translated it friend, I think in the context you'd know this is not talking about his friends today in like 1999. He's talking about his, like this is talking about alliances in a different time period. So looking for words would have sorted this out for me and my friend. We would have been, okay, we understand this. All right, what about the grammar Be imitators of God is like an here and now command. Like, this is what I ought to do now. What is it in Obadiah? It's a future tense idea. This will happen one day. Now, that's actually why he was afraid. He thought this was about to happen impendingly. But again, if I know, hey, this is talking about an Old Testament book, I can actually look forward in history and see if this has happened yet. Uh, Number four here is the structure. And all I'm going to say is that you should always read more than one verse. Like we only read one verse and my, my, my youth leader said only read one verse. And I would just say that's probably not ever, ever the best ever at any time good advice. Okay? You should just always read more than one verse. In fact, read the whole paragraph. Now, once you understand the paragraph, you could like chew on one verse that day but read the whole passage. And actually, if my buddy had just read more than one verse, he would have thought, I don't know what this whole thing's talking about. And he probably wouldn't have thought it was his friends that God was saying were out to get him. All right, number five, the mood. In Ephesians 5.1, it's a command, but you actually might change that in maybe an exhortation. Like when it's saying be imitators of God, it doesn't have that feel, you better be an imitator of God, okay? It's almost more like a, hey, hey, be an imitator of God, like an appeal, an exhortation. It is a command, but it has a different tone in my mind. But man, Obadiah, that's like harsh condemnation. And I think that would cue you in that something's going on here because if Romans... uh Romans five one I think, says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so there's like this condemning tone going on. Is this really applying to me right now? So all five of these principles, if you like write these down in your Bible cover, and just, just do this for your devotions. Just do this for your devotions for one week and just see what happens. It, it makes a huge difference. Okay, it's 9.05. I don't think we have time for our devotional because don't you all want to go to sleep? tonight. Actually, you don't. You want to go drink coffee and party all night. Okay, so um, let me skip this. Uh, Let me just say one thing. Maybe if you want, we could talk about this another time, but if you look at Ephesians 5, where it says, be imitators, it's like the center of the passage. Paul lays out for you, when, when you were unsaved, this is how you lived. You lived with a darkened mind. You lived with a hardened heart. You lived alienated from the things of God. And you lived with a mind that was futile. That means no matter how hard you think, you can't make sense of the world and you can't make sense of your own life. I think we see that in life with people we know who don't know the Lord. No matter how hard they would try, there's no way they can see the truth. But he says, This life, this life you were living is not the way you learned Christ. You were saved and you changed. You've transitioned and you're different. Now you're here. You have a renewed mind. You have a new heart. You have like the truth of God. You have the Holy Spirit. And so what are you supposed to do? Don't go back and live like this. Live like this new person. Then the rest of the passages, because you're this new person, live like this. Not like that. Stop doing that and start doing this because, and he gives a reason, and it's like this recycled theme that goes the rest of the way through the book. It's really great. If you've not studied it, you could do your devotions for like two weeks out of this passage. Okay, I want to give you a tool that will help. If if you're not used to inductive Bible study, you've never heard of this method, This is a super simple book. I actually assign it to my college students, so there's probably like a dozen or two dozen of you in here who have read this. Now, if you don't think the book's good and you've read it, don't tell anyone. I think the book is good. But if you, college student here, think it's a good book, tell everyone it's a good book because it's a good book. All right, so here, ignore that final thought, the aim for the timeless truth. Living by the book, all this guy does is he walks you through observation, interpretation, application, And he makes, like, he puts the cookies on the lowest shelf. Easy reading, funny illustrations, really down-to-earth practical advice. So if the stuff we talk about this weekend sounds interesting, this is a really great resource for you. Okay, last, let me skip this. Oh, yeah, when you study, aim for a timeless truth, and then invest in a tool, and there's some tool ideas. I think that's the end of my PowerPoint, it's not going any further. Last thought before I leave you. I know I'm eight minutes over. We're going to talk about Bible study methods this weekend. And if all we do is talk about it, it's not going to do anyone any good. So save this piece of paper and find a buddy. Maybe someone here. Say, hey, you know what? Let's start meeting once a week for three weeks. And let's try to study our Bible together. If you've not had a Bible study with another person in a while, uh, you're missing out when you study the Bible with another believer and you dig into the Word together, there's something that happens that helps both of you progress in your walk with God. So my challenge to you is, after this weekend, find someone you can study the Bible with together. All right, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we love you. Thank you, Lord, for today. Thank you for this weekend where we can uh, get to see each other, we can hang out and have a good time, but we can also devote ourselves to reminding ourselves good principles in studying your word. I pray, Father, that the information we're taking in would help us, God. I pray that as we're diving into verses here and there, Uh, that your spirit would help us. It would convict us of sin. It would lead us in the right path going forward. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for you. We're thankful for all that you give us. Father, it says in James that every good gift that we receive comes down from above from you. And so, Father, we're thankful that we can be here this weekend. We're thankful for the coffee shop that's in full operation. We're thankful for all the stuff that we have. But most of all, Father, we are thankful for Jesus and his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, thank you that he stood in our place of punishment. He took our sins so that we could be freely forgiven and have a relationship with you. Father, we love you. Pray that you'd bless our time this weekend and it would honor you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.